This is Laura Rosenblum, co-host of this episode of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Hallie Teco. Hallie is the founder and CEO of Natalist. Previously, she was the founder of early-stage digital health venture fund, Rock Health, and an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. Hallie started her career working in finance and business development roles at Intel and Apple. She is currently an advisor to the Harvard Medical School Department of Biomedical Informatics in Boston Children's Hospital. I'm super excited to have the chance to interview Hallie. I have been a fan of hers from afar for a long time, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much. So happy to have you join us. Um, I personally can't think of a better person to be interviewing during this global experience. Um, there's definitely an awful lot that we can learn from you, uh, particularly in the context of how you're leading Natalist through COVID and the work that you've been doing more personally with, with respect to um, some of the donations that you've initiated yeah. recently. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the questions that we've been um, kicking off with most of our guests recently is kind of a fun question just to get things going. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I had a few phases of um, what I wanted to do, but I wanted to be a journalist in high school. I was the editor of our high school newspaper, and um, I, I'm a first-generation college student and have a father who was extremely practical and um, saw that, you know, I had pretty good marks in math class. <laughs> and so um, pushed me more towards finance and said I uh, needed a job that was going to be more stable. So um, I didn't, I obviously didn't go into journalism, but yeah, that was uh, a dream of mine in high school. That's actually funny you say that. I interviewed Lisa Soonan a few weeks ago for the podcast, and she also said, um, a journalist, she said, investigative Oh, uh -huh. I knew Lisa and I were um, soul so sisters in some way, <laughs> <laughs> shared dreams. <laughs> so to catch folks up from the early dreams of being a journalist, um, we'd love to just understand how you've thought about your career path and arriving where you are now. You've obviously achieved so much. Um, could you Talk us through some of the decision points and choices that you made along your career journey. Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. So I, as I said, I was a I was a first generation college student, and as other first gen college students know, there's a lot of pressure on you and your family to succeed and find stability. So right out of college, um, you know, startups weren't even in the question for me. That was just far too risky. I needed something far more financially stable with a 401k. Um, and so I only applied to jobs at large corporations and ended up in a finance position at Intel in Santa Clara, um, which was my, my first real, you know, job out of school. Um, and, you know, realized that while I appreciated the stability uh, of working at a large company and I was in a really wonderful management training program, which really gave me the structure and mentorship to grow quite a bit, um, I was certainly hungry for more, um, which really led me to, to go back to business school. And so um, that was a huge turning point for me 
uh, I went to undergrad at Case Western, which is uh, an hour from where I grew up. Um, didn't have a lot of, you know, lived in San Francisco, you know, after school, which was obviously a huge life change for me being outside of Ohio. Um, but nothing was truly more uh, life changing than going to HBS and understanding firsthand how the world works, which was simultaneously, you know, eye-opening and shocking and like somewhat depressing to kind of see how old money rules the world. Um, you know, classmates that came from all around the world and, and HBS does a really good job of bringing in underrepresented um, students, but there is this, you know, old guard that still persists in business. And um, I was so unaware of those people um, and how connected they were. And, oh my gosh, your dad got you a job. Like, I mean, I, I couldn't, that, that was just so um, unfathomable for me. So that was a, you know, really eye-opening experience. I obviously learned so much. I made amazing friends and um, met a lot of uh, people that I then invested in as an angel investor and vice versa, folks that um, have invested in, in my company. Um, when I was at HBS, I was really there to kind of combine my interest in technology and healthcare. I had in college interned um, at the Cleveland Clinic and at um, Columbia University Hospital and really wanted to kind of merge these interests in kind of the health world and the tech world. And that was the genesis of, of Rock Health. Um, which I started with Nate Gross, who was a classmate of mine. And it started off as a class project and morphed into my dream job. Um, so, you know, launching Rock Health while, I, while we were still in school, we were in our last semester, um, was really exciting and very distracting to finish my studies while starting Rock Health. Uh, but then, you know, was able to kind of get that off the ground when I graduated in 2011 and worked on that um, up until, you know, a couple of years ago when I um, stepped down from the day-to-day -day role to start teaching at Columbia, um, which was another amazing, this is fun to walk through my career. Good. Uh, I've I've been very fortunate and a lot of people have um, really helped shape where I've gone. Um, but teaching at Columbia, we created the first kind of MBA level course on digital health investing uh, that was very case study based and worked with a lot of startups that um, you know were came in to do live cases and pitch their businesses and then the students write memos and it was a, a great course um, taught there for three years until I started Natalist and I hope to teach again um, right now I'm just way too busy so kind of on sabbatical from the school but uh, really hope to to be able to teach again because it was really one of the more meaningful things I've done in my career. Um, so that's, you know, kind of a, a quick synopsis of where I am today. I personally have always gravitated towards exposing myself in my career to things that allow me to stretch in different areas. So it's amazing to hear that you've had kind of your hands in the founder slash investor seat and the angel investing seat and also giving back and teaching and creating curriculum around what at the time with Rock Health was a totally new area of investing. So it's, it's interesting to hear how you've sort of threaded all of that together. Can you talk a little bit more specifically, obviously you're working on Natalist right now, unpack a little bit of the journey to uh, how you started Natalist, how you came up with the idea? Yeah, let's, let's talk a little about Natalist. So I, um, you know, have been investing in healthcare and technology for, you know, at least a decade now, um, within the last five years have been 
particularly interested in women's health, which is an area that I saw was really just ripe for change and for more kind of patient-centered care um, and products and services. So um, had, you know, spent a lot of time just investing in women's health and have funded uh, a handful of awesome women's health companies. And one of the areas that um, I became pretty obsessed with was the fertility space because of my own journey. So, um, you know, it took us quite a long time to get, um, you know, to become parents and really went through everything in that process. Um, and through that, just realized how lousy uh, the, the, the products, the information, um, and, and the experience overall is for families that want to have children. Um, and one product specifically uh, kind of inspired the idea for Natalis years and years and years ago. Um, and that was a uh, sperm, FDA cleared, sperm friendly uh, fertility lubricant that I'm not going to name the actual product, but it's made by a very large company. Um, and so this is, you know, one of the very few, I think there's three or four FDA cleared lubricants that are safe for conception. Um, so sperm friendly and shown, clinically shown to be sperm friendly. Um, and so this product, um, you know, I bought it. A lot of people buy it. It's very popular. And like on the box is just this like homey looking blonde lady with a baby. Um, and it just felt so disconnected from what I was doing, which, you know, to get pregnant, you have to have lots of sex. That's the reality of it. Um, but there was such a disconnect between what is technically a medical device, um, and what is being used by women to conceive. And so I was just like, this is like, I don't want this on my bedstand. I don't want it in my bathroom. It was like an embarrassing product. And, and that was like kind of the trigger. And then, you know, buying ovulation tests, buying pregnancy tests, they were not millennial friendly, yeah. they were not user friendly. Um, they were not reasonably priced. Um, they were not um, written in plain English, the instructions. And so I thought, you know, we really, there really needs to be a company that just redesigns these products for women, period. And so had the idea years ago, bought the domain name baby someday which was which is our legal name um at the time it still is our legal name but you know kind of wanted to see this happen i said you know what? i'm just gonna wait and see if someone starts this company and i'm going to back them and i'm going to be very involved and i really want to see this company exist and uh you know nothing came along uh you know met with a few founders that i tried to convince to go this direction um that did not go this direction uh, CPG is a is a very difficult industry, um, and especially having no experience making physical products, knew that I needed the right partners. Um, ultimately, you know, realized that I just needed to do it myself. Um, I was just so passionate about changing the conversation, changing the products in this space that I had to to just get in and do the dirty work. So um, I remember, like, you know, going home and telling. My husband, like I've, like I just can't get this idea out of my head. I need to do it. Um, and he was, you know, thinking about starting his own thing. And we were kind of both in a really good place because we had worked when we were in San Francisco. We were just workaholics, and it wasn't 
healthy for anyone. Um, and then we moved to the East Coast. We kind of found more balance. And I was teaching and Jeff was working at Mount Sinai. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden we're both like going to start companies again at the same time, which was crazy. Uh, but, uh, you know, realized that we, just, we still had a lot of passion for company building and, you know, just, it was the right time. So I, you know, assembled the team and we got up and running in, um, you know, early 2019 and launched in August of 2019. So we're only, you know, seven or eight months into this. Um, but it's been, you know, I've, I've learned a ton and, you know, realized that it's a lot harder to be a founder than to be an investor. Um, that is my experience. <laughs> maybe, maybe other investors will disagree if they have a hard job, but um, it's much easier to, to be a supporting role at a company than, you know, be the star of the show that has to fight fires on a daily basis. Yeah. And I, I would love to talk about that. I know we, we spoke about that a bit briefly last week. Um, I'd love to hear how that kind of paradigm shift has occurred within you. I mean, it's incredible to hear sort of this arc. You started off in thinking about your early uh, career aspirations and saying that journalism was way too risky. And now here you are talking about starting a, a subsequent company while your husband is starting a company at the same time. And it's amazing to hear how that sort of evolved over time. Um, obviously, one of the biggest risks to uh, many businesses right now, and especially entrepreneurs, is what we're seeing in the U.S. Um, around COVID and the impact that this has had on businesses. Um, it was really interesting chatting with you last week. One of the things that you brought up was responsible leadership and the role that uh, business business owners, business builders um, can really be playing at this time. Uh, would love to unpack a little bit more what this means to you and how you're demonstrating this right now. So, you know, from, I guess one thing I forgot to mention in my career path was that I had also, you know, started an MPH at Johns Hopkins around the same time that I was um, doing the plunge into Natalist. So I have one class left to take and then I will have my MPH. Um, but that experience has really helped me look at healthcare problems with a new lens. And it's been so valuable because I think before I only had my business hat on and I could be sympathetic to patients um, through my own patient experiences. But having the public health framework has really changed how I look at problems and understand problems. Um, so when COVID was happening in, in China, um, when the outbreak was happening there, my my husband and I it was it was a big topic of conversation for us um, because a you know me taking courses on epi and um, you know infectious diseases you know kind of now understand the true magnitude that these uh, can take on and so and then you know my husband has been working in immunology and biotech for a while and so we had a close eye on what was going on on top of that we have a Chinese au pair who lives with us and her parents were. Um, you know, in quarantine from the beginning of January, now, just now they're starting to be um, allowed on a selective basis to kind of leave their home. Um, but, you know, we were very aware of what was happening in China and um, very worried of, uh, about the, the capabilities of the U.S. healthcare system and the U.S. government to manage something like coronavirus. And so we, you know, watched it really closely. We actually ended up starting our quarantine on March 6th. So we were somewhat early. I have 
asthma um, and, you know, understand the, the respiratory risk, especially for people like myself. And so we, um, you know, decided to play it safe and uh, pull my son out of school and, you know, hunker down and, and just, uh, you know, shelter in place on our own way far before, um, you know, any, any government, any city had required it. So that kind of, you know, informed how I was viewing the situation, just having more knowledge than if this had happened five years ago. Um, on top of that, Jeff started a project early on in early March um, with Alexis Magical at the, at the Atlantic called COVID Tracking. I think it's covidtracking.com. And they are a, a group of one over 100 now volunteers who are tracking the state level data to kind of see trends and on testing over time. And as you know, testing shortages have been an enormous problem that has accelerated the, the speed at which people are getting um, diagnosed with COVID or sorry, are catching it because there's a lot of unknown cases. And um, he's been, you know, intimately aware of what's going on because of his involvement in this project and, um, you know, kind of watching it happen in slow motion, knowing where it was going. And so I think anyone right now who has, you know, any privilege needs to be using their powers for good. I mean, we always should be, right? Um, but especially, you know, when things are hitting home and your neighbors, your local um, business owners, your just the infrastructure around you locally as well as nationally are being so impacted. Um, I, I think it's really important that we all step up and do what we can. I really, you know, Jeff was donating literally almost, it became his, has become his full-time job. I mean, he's spending probably 40 to 60 hours on this a week. Um, I didn't really know where I fit in um, and was kind of feeling the, you know, a lot of anxiety and depression around it. Um, just the fact that we have this crisis on our hands that we're not able to contain that is putting the healthcare providers, healthcare workers' lives at risk was, was pretty um, harrowing for me. And so I turned to the Fred Rogers quote of, you know, when there's bad things on the news, look for the helpers. And that was a good distraction for me. So just started like tweeting kind of individuals as well as organizations that I was seeing that were trying to be part of the solution. Um, and that was great. I mean, that helped me feel good because I was like, oh, great. Like there are, you know, people out there. Let's, let's focus on them. Let's highlight them and the amazing things that they're doing right now to ameliorate the situation. Um, and then kind of just took that one step further to say, uh, okay, let's not just find the helpers, let's fund the helpers. Let's help them help others on the ground. And so like, I just remember we were, my husband and I were going to bed one night and I was like, I think we should just donate a ton of money, um, more than we've ever given out before. We've been donors in a lot of different projects over the years, but really felt like this was the time for us because a lot of people are not able to donate right now and are pulling back. Um, and so it really felt like we, our donations are needed even more right now. Um, and so, so I'm going to give our listeners a little bit of context yeah. here because I, I want to make sure that we get to the punchline because it's incredible what both you and Jeff have, have been doing during this time. Um, you were on MSNBC on March 29th talking about the grants that you awarded to 34 nonprofits totaling almost $400,000 in funding, which is- And now we're over, now we're over 450,000. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely amazing. So talk, talk to us about that process. What was that like? 
yeah. So I just, you know, the next day I, I, you know, I told Jeff about it on Wednesday night. He's like, I don't have any time for this, but you just, yeah, go do it. That sounds great. (laughs) So woke up the next morning and I was like, all right, I'm just going to put out a a tweet and say, Hey, nonprofits, like, I know you guys are working really hard. I'll make this really easy for you. Fill out these like four questions with, you know, what you're doing to support, um, and you know, how you're dealing with kind of these emerging issues from COVID and we'll give out, I'll give out five, $10,000 grants. Um, that then, you know, a, a bunch of other donors reached out to me and said, awesome. Like I want to give too. So that pool just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, we ended up with, you know, what was it over almost 400 applications, um, spent 72 hours. We had a group of 10 volunteers, many of them doctors wow. themselves, um, you know, just mulling through these, um, amazing grant applications and, um, ended up, you know, I think we're at like 37 now that we have funded. Um, so it's, you know, and then, you know, we, we were able to give within a, within a week, less than a week, we were able to write them checks. So, you know, that's, that sort of time frame is, is heard of in the philanthropy world. Grants generally take months, if not years to award. And so we just realized that it was really critical you know, time is of the essence. They're, they're, we don't have months. These are organizations that need to be supporting people now. Um, they're organizations like Get Us PPE, which is literally bringing protective gear to the healthcare workers that are on the front lines and being exposed to COVID. They can't wait months to get a grant to fund this work. They need the money now. Um, so because we're private donors, we were able to do it a lot faster. And um, hopefully, you know, more people will jump on the bandwagon and continue to fund like right now immediately. So it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And it's been incredible to sort of watch this progress evolve. Even, even two days later, the numbers have clearly grown. What are some other ways? I know you've, you've been making suggestions and other ways that, that individuals can support one another in this time. What are some other ways that, that you think about that? Yeah, um, giving blood. They need healthy blood donors now. I think that's something that people can do if you've already had COVID, um, you know, volunteering and helping you know, being a volunteer doula, being, uh, you know, holding someone's hand, like they're, they're needed and they will only be needed more. Um, you know, calling someone that is isolated and alone, if someone's maybe elderly or just any of your friends that aren't living with anyone, cheering them up, um, you know, help if you're perfectly healthy, making, um, you know, food for neighbors, running errands for neighbors that aren't able to, to move, um, buying gift cards to your local grocery store, uh, writing thank you cards to providers, writing cards to um, people that are military, that are overseas. And there's so many ways. Just get creative and just do it. I keep saying, like, just, just don't overthink it. Just do whatever you can. Every little act yeah. can make such a big difference. I want to switch gears a little bit, taking us back to Natalist. Um, one of the things that we discussed is uh, you have an exciting launch um, that I think by the time this episode will have aired, it will be announced <laughs> Target, which is amazing news, is a huge milestone for the business, but comes with a dynamic to manage just in this moment uh, where the tone and, and mood collectively is uh, one of challenge. How do you strike the right tone and celebrate the things that are worth celebrating, but also be cognizant of the challenges that people are facing? Um, can you talk a little bit about what it has been like to be launching something so exciting for your business in this in this current moment? Yeah, you know we've worked so hard on this target launch for met, like nine months. Um, our team has worked really hard to make this a possibility. And internally, you know, it's very exciting and we want, um, you know, I want to make sure that my team is, 
feels good about this major accomplishment, but like the timing couldn't be worse. Um, we, you know, there was a, a time period where we were like, let's just not announce it. Let's just kind of quietly be out there and people will see us. And that is, you know, that's enough. And then, you know, we thought about it and we're like, no, this is, we are firmly committed to women's health and increasing access to affordable, easy to use, essential products. Now is, it's more important now than ever that women have access to these products. And so really helping us kind of center on our, our core mission. Um, and we are, you know, by the time this launches, you will have heard our announcement. So you'll kind of hear what we're doing, but it can kind of, you know, give an insight, which is, you know, really, if this, if we had launched a month ago, two months ago, our message would have been like, hell yeah, we're in target. Like so exciting, you know, jumping up and down. <laughs> Um, and we actually, you know, I actually have some footage. We went to target a while ago before all of this to do some footage with our photographer that is more celebratory. And now we can't even use any of it because it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel, it feels very toned. desk. we're like, scratch all of that. Let's just get to the core of why we're here and what drives us. Um, and it feels, you know, the messaging that we've come up with feels right, feels authentic, um, and feels timely given the context of what's happening. And so for any other business that's trying to figure out, you know, do I launch this feature? Do I, you know, make this big announcement? I would say, yes, you should. I mean, this is, you are doing something really important, which is keeping people employed and serving your customers. Um, but what you really need to do is kind of get to the core of why you do what you do. What's the meaning behind your work and let that shine right now. Uh, because that that's really what's going to resonate right now versus anything that feels inauthentic. Absolutely. And, and even, I mean, we had a very candid discussion, I think in our prior conversations around um, the not acknowledging everything that's going on right now is a huge missed opportunity, but also just, it just, it, it's what everyone's talking about. It's what everyone's experiencing. And so it's important to make sure that that's not overlooked. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. Like it's so weird. Like I, I was getting ads for a shoe company that like, I, like that had like a woman out on the streets. And I was like, I haven't left my house in almost a month. Like it felt, it really didn't feel, I probably now won't support that brand because of it. Cause it just felt like so out of context. I do agree. You know, people are like, Hey, I don't want to be reminded of COVID all the time. So I don't think every message should be COVID related, but every message should take into account what is happening in customers' lives. And so for a shoe company, like, you know, take, have someone dancing in their living room. That would be much better imagery because I can relate to that. Someone sitting on their couch, like, you know, working from home. Like those are the images that um, are relevant to people right now. So really thinking through, like, you don't have to mention COVID all the time, but you need to be aware of what customers are going through in order to connect yep. with them right now. Um, and thinking that kind of reminds me, thinking specifically to who the Natalist customer base is, um, how we talked a little bit about how do you anticipate that um, the pandemic may impact how people think about growing their families, at least in the short term. Because I've, I've seen there's a lot of there's a lot of chatter about this right I now. I know. Well, you know, there's a. I, I've heard it both ways. So I've um, you know read different articles that were that are like predicting a big baby boom. Um, and I I do think that there are couples who uh, may, maybe both parents work and they travel a lot. And so actually like finding the time to conceive during your fertile window is very difficult for them. So for those couples actually being home right now 
is a great thing and um, you know be able to align and hopefully you know use this time to get closer and hopefully get pregnant um, but then there are others who might um, you know feel financially insecure might be at risk of losing their job or have already lost their job not where feel like this actually isn't a great time for us um, and might choose to wait so I think only time will tell but I can see it going both ways and we're you know I, I, we just keep focusing on like we're here to support our customers if they're trying now or trying later we have products for people that are still in the planning phases so we have a book called parent plans which is a great exercise for couples to go through as they think about family planning before they start trying. So, you know, we're, we're just focusing on like, we're here for you. We'll see what happens if there's a baby boom. That'd be funny. <laughs> if there's not like, you know, fertility overall has been declining year over year in the U.S. anyways. So uh, we'll see, we'll, well, only time will tell. I love the message of, of being there, supporting your customers and, and even supporting your team um, just, yeah. just through this moment. Uh, so I promised we would, we would chat a little bit about your experience as an investor and, and thinking about supporting other folks. What has it been like having a portfolio of founders and businesses um, that you oversee and how has that changed in this moment versus what I, I will say what normal life was like in, in managing kind of a portfolio of your own angel investments? Yeah, I, um, I love angel investing. I love being a cheerleader for founders. Um, um, as I said, it's a lot easier to be kind of a cheerleader on the sidelines than be in the game. So um, it's easy to do in terms of, you know, supporting founders and whatever I can do from opening my Rolodex to being a sounding board to being a therapist. Um, I, I really love working with founders. Um, so, you know, that hasn't changed. I, I've personally put my investing on hold for a while as I focus on my philanthropic efforts around COVID and focus on Natalist. So, um, you know, that I'm not growing my portfolio right now, but I'm, I, I do feel, um, you know, like there's a lot of work to be done with the existing companies that I've funded. And I will say, like, I feel probably more connected to other founders right now than I ever have all of us kind of experiencing this, this, this new experience together. Um, and there's a interconnectedness and I'm, you know, on a few text threads and in some like, you know, weekly zoom meetings with other founders that, um, have been really helpful to me and hopefully helpful for them as well. But it, we all need more therapy right now because there's a lot of unknowns. Um, and there's a lot of talks about, you know, how do I do scenario planning and how do I think about, um, you know, hiring plans right now. And I had, you know, all these growth plans and all these new hires that I was going to bring on. What does this mean now? Are we going to be going into a recession? Is it going to be a U-shaped recession or a V-shaped recession? That makes a big difference between how you, you know, plan your hires and your spend. So I feel, um, you know, much, it's weird because I think, you know, you can, you can put money in a company and never, you know, talk to founders. And I do have cases where I'm not very close with the founders and that's, that's just the way it is. And it's fine. And that's how a, a common angel investing experience, but I do feel like what's happening right now is, um, is, is an experience where you really do need to talk to others and you really, you know, want to talk your ideas out and your thoughts out and get as much in, input as possible. So I, I am feeling um, a lot more connected just because these conversations are happening. Whereas like, you know, when the economy is booming, there's not as much to talk about. Now yeah. it's like we have, we have no idea what's going to happen. So there's, there's more, there's more to discuss. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm glad at least that the, 
technology right now that there's mechanisms for communicating with other folks and staying in constant contact. Um, I, I have personally found that um, I feel more in touch with people, even though I haven't seen them in who knows how long. Same. Well, in the interest of time, um, my favorite question that I asked you last week, and I'm sure tons of listeners are wondering about, I've said it already and I'll repeat it again, um, accomplished so much um, throughout your career. How do you get so much done? I mean, we've talked about now Angel Investments founding multiple companies in kind of a short window of one week, donating almost half a million dollars to a ton of nonprofits. How, how do you accomplish all of what you do? <laughs> yeah, I am insanely focused on productivity. Um, have been like a just kind of a productivity focus person my my whole life. Uh, it really started in high school when I didn't want to bring home my big heavy books on on the bus, and so I was like, I have this break, I have this lunch, I have this free period, um, and so I like would plan out my all my homework so that I could get everything done, so I didn't have to bring my books on the bus. Um, which kind of is how I, I live my that. life now. <laughs> it's like now, you know, now that I'm a mom, um, I have, I have less time. I can't just like sit there on my computer, you know, until 9 PM. Right. Um, I, I ha like, I have a hard stop where I need to be present with my family, which has been the best thing to happen to my productivity because I don't just like sit around and shoot the shit. Like I'm able to just get, you know, get an impossible amount of work done over, you know, a set number of hours. So really focusing on productivity and I'm really able to focus. Like I can sit there and just like through work, um, which is, which is a gift. Like I'm, I, I, I have others in my lives who just, you know, my husband procrastinates everything. I've never had that problem. Thank goodness. I actually like to get things done early and as soon as they're assigned to me. Um, so, you know, I think that's just the way I'm wired. I will say something I've learned and something that we talked about last week was just like, being able to say no. Um, I used to say yes to everything. And um, I had a frank conversation with Bob Coacher at least six years ago, seven years ago, a long time ago, where he was Kelly, you realize you don't have to say yes to everything. <laughs> and he's like, you just say yes to every conference that asks you to go. And I was like, you're right. I don't have to say yes. Um, I think like, uh, you know, women were kind of programmed to be people pleasers. And so um, it's, it's, it's been harder for me to say no, but now I just like protect my time. Um, and you know, just say, Hey, look, like I'm really busy right now. I can't talk. Um, I can't, although I will, I will say one of the things that I've, I've experienced you doing in your no is, is a no, but I'm happy to connect you to someone who might really be flattered by the opportunity. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. I always, yeah. For speaking, especially like if I can, you know, suggest five other women, like that's, you know, that's the preferred method. Um, you know, the hardest is like, you know, I'd love to mentor young women in their careers. Um, I'm still, I still feel like I'm early in my career, but realizing there are people kind of just out of school that I would love to help, um, guide and tell them the things that I wish I heard then. Um, and those are the hardest to say no to, but like, I just don't have the capacity. Like if I do that, something else, like, you know, my, my, I, I takes away from my day job and my fiduciary duty right now is too natalist. And so, uh, you know, it's really hard to do everything you want to do. And so prioritizing and, and really focusing on what matters to you, um, is important. So yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough saying no, but you got it. What did you say to me last week? 
What did you do to protect your time? Oh yeah. So my friend and I, exactly. My friend and I have a saying every day. It's every day we ask ourselves, what's one thing we did to protect our time, which may include saying no, or might include, you know, pushing something to next week. But, but we choose one thing that we either cancel or, um, have previously committed to that we can back out of, um, and try try to find one thing in our day that we can, uh, remove ourselves from. Love it. Last question for you. Any um, advice for folks? A lot of our listeners are MBAs, um, but anyone who is a bit earlier in your career, I guess this is a way for you to scale some of that mentorship request that you might be getting. Um, any any final words of wisdom that you might have for some of our listeners, career or otherwise? Um, well, if you have your MBA, you're probably in a better position to take risks. So, you know, do it. Um, if you have, you know, if you have the ability to, um, you know, start a company and, or work at an early startup, like it is such a transformative experience. Um, you know, don't be afraid of taking that risk. I would also say, don't be afraid to cold email. (laughs) Even though I just said, I don't, you know, have as much time to respond to these. I, I've, um, you do a lot of, I do respond and I, and I, um, and I've had a lot of people respond to me in my career throughout, you know, the last 15 years that I'm so glad I did, you know, blindly reach out to them because, um, you know, they've been people that have become bigger parts of my career. Um, and all, you know, the worst case was that they wouldn't answer an email. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to someone and don't get mad if they don't respond. Um, people are really busy, but, um, you know, reach out and be thoughtful and, you know, just wishing you all the best. Well, Hallie, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, Has been wonderful to hear your experiences leading up to this point, how you're kind of navigating the current moment. Um, So glad to have you on this episode of The Pulse. Thank you so much. Thank you.